Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatrician addresses what we need to know about child trafficking and sexual exploitation in central New York. It's definitely been a major paradigm shift as we've started to recognize this problem more and call it what it is. These children are victims, they're not prostitutes. A pediatric infectious disease expert addresses the measles outbreak and childhood vaccinations. Essentially, vaccines, what they do, they educate our immune system, so when the enemy attacks, the system is ready. And a researcher from the National Institute of Mental Health talks about what she's discovered about addictive drugs. My lab has been interested in what happens when amphetamines enter the cell and they enter through a molecule which is a transporter for the neurotransmitter dopamine. All that plus a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn about the measles outbreak and what you need to know about childhood vaccinations. Then, we'll talk with an expert from the National Institute of Mental Health about her research that helps us understand addictive drugs. But first, we'll hear from a pediatrician about child trafficking and sexual exploitation in Central New York. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When we read headlines about child sex trafficking rings, it may be tempting to think something so sordid couldn't happen here in central New York, but it does. And here to talk about this with me is Dr. Alicia Pekarski. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate, and she works in the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation Program at the McMahon-Ryan Child Advocacy Center. Thanks for coming on HealthLink on Air, Dr. Pekarski. Thanks for having me. I want to start with a definition of child sex trafficking. Um, the Department of Justice stipulates minors that are used for the purpose of commercial sex. Um, can you talk to me about how victims fall prey to situations like this? I think there are a number of uh, risk factors for children entering into the field of sex trafficking. Um, one risk factor is children who've been in foster care or in and out of different homes. So lack of stability. Lack of stability in their home environment. Um, Another risk factor is a child who's been um, a victim of abuse. Um, So more specifically, a child who's been a victim of abuse who has not um, disclosed their abuse yet or has disclosed and not been believed and not been treated. So these traffickers sort of lure them with offers of food and clothes and a safe place to sleep and sort of work their way into their lives that way? Right. Um, they are looking for kids um, like we just like we talked about. Um, and by definition, um, commercial sexual exploitation of children or domestic minor sex trafficking is when they try to engage a child, bring them somewhere to have the child have sex with someone in exchange for money, food, shelter, or even protection. So it's not just um, money. I think people think of it as they're getting something um, financial from the person, but it can be any other thing of value. So these are not child prostitutes, per se. No, they're victims. And I think that there's definitely been a major um, paradigm shift in the probably the last five, 10 years as we've started to recognize this problem more and call it what it is. Um, These children are victims. They're not prostitutes. And do we see this happening in central New York? We do, unfortunately. I think it's um, quite common. It's more common than we'd like to believe. Um, and I think we're at particular risk being um, along the, the throughway. So you'll see it in bigger cities. Um, and we are, you know, concerned because we have the throughway that goes from Buffalo East to Albany and then down to New York City. So we see it um, across the state, including in central New York. And I think that it's at this point underreported. There's probably a lot more children who are victims than we actually recognize. So there are children maybe from other cities that are brought here, and then there are children from here that are are 
victimized here and then taken elsewhere. Right. That's right. What role does the internet and telephone apps play in child sex exploitation? That touches upon a, a really interesting topic of online safety. Um, and as a parent, I, I think about this a lot. I think that with social media and all these apps that are on kids' smartphones, um, it's very easy for um, perpetrators, um, people who are looking for children, to connect with them. And that's sort of this these preteens and teens spend a lot of time online or on apps um, connecting with friends and maybe people they they don't know who they are really right because we often we know that people are portraying themselves as something different as a different age as a different gender as a different profession when they're contacting children um, they'll say that they're a peer um at first, that they're the same age, um, that they go to the neighboring high school and that they want to meet up and they lure the children. And these are kids, you know, from all parts of Syracuse. Um, these are kids who are going to school or they're also kids who aren't going to school, meaning they're being, they're truant. Um, they're kids who may be sneaking out at nighttime and then coming back in the morning and getting on the bus or going to school. Do we have a sense of how uh, number-wise how many kids are victimized in this way in this area? I'm not sure, certain about Onondaga County in particular. Um, we have put forth great efforts at McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center um, to identify these victims. Um, but I can tell you that in New York State in 2018, um, there were over 400 reports um, of uh, child victims. Um, and again, this number is going to be vastly underreported. Um, children who are victims of sex abuse or physical abuse, we know that their numbers are underreported and that many children are hesitant to discuss their abuse. Um, and in addition to that, children who are victims of sex trafficking are even more so um, reticent to discuss what's going on in their lives. So we know that that number is much, much higher. What do we know about the traffickers, the, the people that, that victimize these children? Are they mostly men of a certain age? or There's definitely a lot of men, but I would say women are involved in trafficking um, as well. Um, there's a, a lot of times the head trafficker is a man, um, but they have a close connection with someone called a bottom, who's typically a woman in the cases that I've been involved in and what I've learned at national from national meetings um, on this topic. Um, so there's a bottom who's typically a woman who does some of the recruiting also and may act as kind of a maternal figure to some of these children who may not have, um, that again, that stability in their home. So how do traffickers get away with this? I mean, obviously, they don't all get away with it because we see arrests in, in news accounts of arrests from time to time. But how do they get away with it? I think because initially, um, and potentially for many years, victims don't see themselves as victims. Um, they're the children, um, since I'm a pediatrician, the children that I take care of, I can speak to, their brain hasn't fully developed. And so they don't recognize their victims. And this can go on for a long period of time. Um, in addition, I think it's a difficult um, entity to identify, um, because there aren't a lot of specific signs or symptoms. There are signs and symptoms, you know, that we would consider in the medical community that go with a victim who's been sex trafficked but they're not specific to that condition. So they may, you know, a child, for example, who's truant from school and is running away multiple times, um, it could be related to sex trafficking. It could be related to them being abused in their home. It could be related to them having a mental health issue that's untreated, amongst other things. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Alicia Pekarski. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate, and she works in the Child Abuse Referral and Evaluation Program at the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center. So I want to make sure we talk about the resources that are available. Um, I know New York State has a trafficking and exploitation hotline with the number of 315 
218-218-1966. But there's some other resources in addition to the McMahon Ryan Child Advocacy Center. Um, which ones do you recommend? Some of the resources that I um, teach about at Upstate as well as um, offer to families um, is the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, um, NECMEC. Another website that I think has really nice um, visual presentation of data and interesting information is the Polaris Project. Um, so that's P-O-L-A-R-I-S, the Polaris Project. And then also um, the Child Welfare Information Gateway, um, which is produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. All right, I want to get back into if you're a if you're a child, and we say child, but teenage, fifteen to sixteen, seventeen year olds is is kind of what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. The bulk of the victims, um, and you're in a situation like this, it might be hard to recognize what's happening to you, right? What are some of the things? Would you have any advice to give someone who finds themselves in this type of situation where they're being exploited? How do they break free of it? I think it's important um, to recognize, again, that a lot of times victims don't realize they're being victimized. So until they do realize that, it's hard to, quote unquote, break them free. Um, And I think a lot of medical professionals think about our jobs as saving people. And in in this case, unfortunately, a lot of these children don't want to be saved. Um, The most important thing I think to do to help these children is to offer them assistance. So offer them to list, offer to listen to them, um, be complete in terms of physical examinations to look for clues that may go with trafficking um, and give them resources. And actually, this is now a fairly new law in New York State that all hospitals community health centers, um, they need to offer that assistance. You mentioned uh, during an exam, a doctor might look for clues to trafficking. What would some of those clues be? Well, one of those clues, honestly, is what you see when you walk in the room. And this is an important um, teaching point, I think, for medical learners and in the community. Um, When you walk in the room and you look around at what's going on in any room, including in the hospital. Um, I like to observe the interactions um, of who's in the room. So in a lot of cases of sex trafficking, um, the victim child is being accompanied by their trafficker. Um, And if you don't ask who's in the room, you have no idea. Um, So it's always appropriate to ask who else is in the room with the child. You'll often see Um, the trafficker trying to dominate the interview. So whereas with most teenagers who are typically developing, um, we tend to ask questions of the child because they can certainly provide most of their own history. Um, A lot of times when you try to ask a child victim um, about what's going on, the trafficker who's the other adult in the who's the adult in the room will start answering for the child because they're trying to direct the medical visit for this child just like they direct all the child's actions outside of the hospital so that's one clue and i think in terms of physical exam um, or things that people can see um, when you're when you have children out and about in the community one of the important things I think to look for is tattoos. So we've recognized in the past few years that these children are being branded um, either with their trafficker's name or um, with a number or with a, a sign of something of some sort. And I like to ask any child um, when I meet them if I see something written on their body, whether again it's it's marker, or it's a temporary tattoo or it's an actual permanent tattoo, what that tattoo means um, to them. Um, Most people who have a tattoo um, that they willingly put there will share their story and they're excited to tell you about it. A victim um, often doesn't want to tell you because they don't want to be recognized. Now, with uh, situations of child abuse, I know in the community there are um, mandated reporters where doctors, teachers, people in positions like that are required to report 
cases or suspicions of child abuse. Does that apply to sex trafficking? It does. And that's actually a new um, law within New York State um, that if you are concerned about a child being a victim of trafficking, whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking, that you must report that to the state central register. Um, And just like with child abuse, Um, including physical abuse and sexual abuse, you do not need to confirm the diagnosis. You do not need to be sure that that is what is going on. It's you, you report if you have a concern. All right. Uh, In your experience, children who've become victims uh, like this, can they be rehabilitated? Absolutely. They have to want to be rehabilitated though. Um, There's lots of services for kids who've been victimized in this way. Um, There's been a push across the country for recognition um, and uh, intervention and treatment. But again, the child has to want that because they have to confirm what's been going on in their life. And that they want the help. and And that they want the help. Well, good. This has been some good information. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Upstate pediatrician Alicia Pekarski. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, are you and your family adequately protected against measles? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The measles situation in America is escalating. So here to help us make sense of what's happening and also to give us a rundown on childhood vaccinations is Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a pediatrician who specializes in infectious diseases at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Shaw. Thank you for having me. Can you describe for me how that how it is that vaccines work? What do they do in our bodies? So vaccines are like schools for children. Essentially, vaccines, what they do, they educate our immune system. So when the enemy attacks, the system is ready. So vaccines contain a variety of different uh, particles. Uh, They contain what's called antigen, which is a particle that essentially uh, allows immune system to recognize the enemy. And then we have adjuvants, essentially substances that help to augment and strengthen the immune response. And then vaccines contain some preservatives to make sure that the vaccines are free of contamination. So upon inoculation, upon vaccination, the immune system sees um, the antigen and responds to it um, in a safe and controlled manner. And that alone allows the immune system to build protection from the the real infection um, when it occurs. So in the case of measles, if I was vaccinated for measles, my immune system should be able to recognize if, if measles, if I'm exposed to that again. Right. If you still have antibodies, um, and actually if you were born before 1957 in general, people were not required to be vaccinated um, because measles circulated uh, broadly. Um, So if you have antibodies, um, the antibodies in your system will neutralize the measles virus, and therefore the virus will not get a chance to uh, propagate and will not get a chance to get you ill. If people now are getting immunized against measles because of the outbreak, how long until they're protected? Is it an immediate protection or does it take time to? So it does take time. Usually it takes a couple of weeks for the uh, immune responses to build enough antibodies so the virus can be neutralized. New York City has declared a public health emergency and the number of cases of measles across the nation is on the rise. So why is measles has reemerged? Why is that? 
Well, in the U.S., since the measles have been declared eliminated in 2000, we have seen increased rise of anti-vaccination movement, and we have seen a rise of um, people who refuse vaccines. So in the U.S., since then, we have seen importations of measles into communities um, that don't vaccinate. So this particular outbreak that you're describing in New York City and the public health emergency declaration pertains to specific communities in certain boroughs of unvaccinated individuals. So we're looking kind of at the last 20 years or about that time frame, and it's sort of the lack of vaccination that is fueling this? Absolutely. Um, You know, in order for the community to be protected from measles, at least 95% of the individuals living in the community have to be vaccinated. Otherwise, the virus gets opportunity to be transmitted and infect those who are vulnerable and susceptible. Well, we're going to get into the concept of herd immunity. um, But I want to talk a little about measles. If I understand correctly, in wealthy nations, there's a one in 1000, like one person dies for every 1000 who contract measles. That seems alarming. Yeah, so one in 1,000 infected um, individuals can die from measles, and they typically die either from respiratory illness, such as pneumonia, or neurological illness, brain infection. So that's pretty high risk if you think about it. Um, And uh, having a very safe uh, vaccine that's very effective as well, uh, one would um, argue that vaccination should be the choice and we will get into some of the reasons people are have been lax and not been vaccinated. But let me ask you, with the measles outbreak, people who were vaccinated as children, are they safe? Are they protected against this measles outbreak? So in general, they are. But unfortunately, what we do see with vaccines, and that's not unique to measles vaccines um, alone, is that vaccines can fail over time. So once you vaccinate someone, the person will develop seroprotection, will develop um, immune protection from the vaccination, but that protection may not last forever. So even if you are vaccinated at a very young age, and now you are maybe elderly, you might be vulnerable. Uh, Are doctors recommending elderly people re-examine or or see about getting vaccinated again at this point? No, not at this point. Uh, At this point, we are focusing on getting vaccinated those who are not vaccinated at all so we can stop the spread of measles because measles has been currently transmitted primarily in the communities of unvaccinated individuals. Well, I was going to ask you, if, if if I'm vaccinated, why should I care if people around me are not? But you sort of answered that. Even though I'm vaccinated, my vaccine may have waned over time. Yes. So especially if you're older, you know, you may not have um, the antibodies or the serum protection um, that uh, you will require to be protected uh, from infection. You will likely be protected from severe disease and you will likely not transmit infection. But at the same time, you may be still vulnerable to getting infected. All right. So why is it a problem for people who say, I don't want to be vaccinated? Why is that a problem for the community? So it is a problem um, for the community because those people, um, especially as they increase in number, they create a contagion of vol- of people who can transmit the virus. Uh, not only they will get infected, and then they will subsequently transmit infection. Measles virus is uh, one of the v- most highly contagious viruses, and 90% of individuals who are not vaccinated will contract infection. It spreads very easily. It's spread by air, and the virus uh, persists in the environment. You know, a good example is if you're on an airplane with someone, even two hours later, the virus will still be in the environment. So it's it's a it's a pesty um, you know virus that um, has to be taken very seriously. Not only it transmits easily, it causes serious illness. So if there's someone who contracts measles somehow, but they're surrounded by people who've been vaccinated the disease isn't going to necessarily spread. But if they're surrounded by people who haven't been vaccinated, it could take off. That's that's exactly um, how it works. Um, that's why it's really important that everybody who can be vaccinated 
is vaccinated so we can protect those in our among us who cannot be vaccinated. And those would be very young children, infants, pregnant women, elderly, people who live with cancer, people who receive medication that suppresses their immune system. Those are people who cannot be safely vaccinated and they rely on us and our civic responsibility to get vaccinated so they can be protected. So there are some legitimate medical reasons that a person might not be able to be vaccinated. Yes, they are. And um, the healthcare providers can guide each um, individual patient and um, explain which one those reasons would be. Um, uh, certainly, there are what are called medical contraindications. There are medical reasons why you cannot receive me- uh, measles vaccine. Um and um, providers would not vaccinate you if you have those. Well, let's talk about some of the what's keeping people from vaccination. Is is cost a reason that someone would not get their child vaccinated in America? Cost should not be an issue, uh, particularly uh, for pediatric population. Um, if a child is not um, insured or doesn't have insurance. Um, uh, the government provides providers with vaccines for children, um, um, so those vaccines are free uh, to to parents. So cost should really not be an issue. What about access? Are there people that who just don't have a pediatrician or don't see a doctor and they just don't bother mm-hmm. seeking out a public health clinic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so access remains a problem uh, for certain socioeconomic groups. Um, those would be individuals who live in areas where transportation is an issue, such as rural areas, areas where there is a shortage of providers, Um areas where public transportation may not be readily available. Um, So that certainly is a cause of under immunization in the United States, but it's not a large um, chunk of those under vaccinated um, among us. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Yana Shaw, uh, about measles and childhood vaccinations. Now, there's been an anti-vax movement in America, and I I guess there's been some anti-vax sentiment going back decades or centuries even. Um, But what is it that that got this going, uh, Mm -hmm. and how has it reached such a a high level of people who are opposed to vaccinating? Mm Well, yeah, so you're right. Um, uh, Vaccine hesitancy or anti-vaccination sentiments are not a new problem. I mean, back in 1905, Jacobson versus Massachusetts is a classic example of a Supreme Court ruling that, you know, individual right will be superseded by um, court's decision um, when it means that uh, vaccination benefits others. Um, And that one dealt with smallpox. That dealt with smallpox, right. And back then, the Supreme Court voted that, you know, your right may be um, subjected to uh, governmental uh, imposition of vaccination because it benefits community and others around you. Nowadays, the anti-vaccination movement has been rising, um, and it's not clear why we know the reasons why anti-vaccination parents um, or proponents cite for some of them it's a concern about vaccine safety for some of them they feel that vaccines are no longer needed for some of them they feel their rights are being violated they feel they should be able to choose uh, whether they vaccinate their children so on and so forth so the myriad of uh, reasons why parents do not vaccinate is is broad so you mentioned vaccine safety, and, and people are, there's some people who are very skeptical of that. And there's actually, if you look back, there are examples of problems with vaccines. The Salk polio vaccine in the 50s, DTP in the 70s. I mean, we hear about these things mm-hmm. going back. And then there's also a bunch of bad information that's out there. So how do you reassure people uh, that vaccines are safe? How do we know they're safe? So that's an excellent question. You know, we in the US, we are very fortunate to have um, extensive vaccine safety monitoring systems in place. Uh, um, They include active surveillance systems such as vaccine safety 
data link. We have a prism that's sort of um, is a vaccine safety monitoring under FDA. You know, there are um, other passive surveillance systems that um, continue to monitor vaccine safety, such as VAERS or CISA. So uh, we know vaccines are safe because we have the opportunity to study rare adverse events um, through those systems. For example, you know, if um, there is a bad outcome uh, that's appears to be associated with vaccination, we nowadays have a surveillance system that can look at millions of individuals and the population who have received vaccine and can be compared to those who have not. And that's how we can safely say whether a certain adverse event is associated with vaccination or not. Do vaccines, I mean, uh, the FDA goes through some rigorous testing of medications before they're approved. Do vaccines go through something like that before they're allowed to be used? Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. The uh, vaccine development is subjected to very rigorous um, testing, um, you know, clinical trials to go through a variety of different stages before uh, vaccines are released on the market. And in addition, after the vaccines are released, we have the post-licensure surveillance systems that monitor vaccine safety. And those are the systems that I have mentioned earlier. Those are all post-licensure. So when I've gotten my flu vaccine, I've noticed they have. there's a number that they write down mm-hmm. and, and give me a copy of that tracks and tells them exactly mm-hmm. which dose I got. Is that part of the... That's part of it, yeah. Okay. I think they wrote down the lot number of the vaccine because if people will come down with unexpected adverse events, they can then track it to certain lots. Okay. Now, if someone is listening to this, um, a young adult, and they um, did not get vaccinated as a child, and they want to at this point, is it too late to go back? I mean, the childhood vaccinations start in infancy, and there's a bunch of them um, all through childhood. So is it too late for someone who's a young adult to catch up? No, it's not. Um, If you're not vaccinated and you want to get vaccinated, uh, go talk to your provider. You can be safely vaccinated and caught up so you're protected. All right. Now, you um, have a study with some colleagues that involved surveying 7th and 8th graders in a suburban middle school in upstate New York. Um, Can you tell us what you found? Yes. Yeah, that was a study that looked at... uh, children in middle school, as you said, seventh and eighth graders. And we are interested to learn about their knowledge and attitudes towards vaccination. For the seventh graders, we just ask about vaccines in general. For eighth graders, we were specific about HPV vaccine. And what we learn is that um, boys and girls have different concerns about vaccines. Boys thought that vaccines are safer than girls. And we also learn that in general, Teens are interested in learning more about vaccines and that they would like to participate in the vaccine decision process when they when they visit their doctor. Um, so the studies sort of um, made us aware that the teens are uh, would like to know more about vaccines, would like to be part of the decision, and um, uh, would like to take a little bit more proactive role in the healthcare decisions. That's interesting. Well, as a pediatrician yourself, uh, at what age do you think kids should have a say? in whether they're vaccinated? Well, I'd like certainly to see that earlier than after they are 18 when they don't need parent to consent. Um, 13 seems like the right age. Um, Of course, there might be individual differences and the maturity level of uh, children at 13 years of age may vary. So there might be a need for some uh, discretion on behalf of the pediatrician or the provider to sort of determine whether the teen is mature enough to make that decision. But 13 seems about right. Well, thanks so much for talking about this with me. My guest has been Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a pediatric infectious disease expert at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear from a scientist from the National Institute of Mental Health.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One of the functions of a medical university is to encourage scientific research. On the campus of Upstate Medical University this week is Dr. Susan Amara, the Scientific Director of the Intramural Research Program at the National Institute of Mental Health. She's here to speak to student researchers, and she agreed to stop by HealthLink on Air. So thank you, Dr. Amara. Thank you. Now, your area of research uh, interest has something to do with antidepressants and psychostimulant medications used for the treatment of mental disorders, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. So can you explain sort of the focus of your laboratory? So um, right now, um, one of the major focuses is to understand um, how medications to treat ADHD work within the brain. Uh, we, we study uh, the psychostimulant medications such as um, amphetamine and methylphenidate, which are um, known as Adderall and Ritalin, and we study how they work on specific cell groups within the brain and how they affect signaling. We know a lot about how, um, what amphetamines do and what Ritalin does, but we know much less about um, the etiology of ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. And um, we know um, surprisingly little about how these drugs really work to affect the, the disorder. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because those are drugs that I rec- recognize. They've mm-hmm. been around and used, and, and so we're still studying them, though, right? Yeah. So it seems to me... Um, m- Many children in the U.S., millions actually, are being treated with these um, psychostimulant drugs. Um, They've been proven to be um, relatively safe, safe um, drugs in general, but we actually don't know what they do to neurons within the brain. And so my lab has been interested in what happens particularly for amphetamine when amphetamines enter the cell and and they enter through a molecule that my lab has studied for many years, which is a transporter for the neurotransmitter dopamine. Um, And um, this uh, carrier um, really allows once a neurotransmitter has been released and to allow signaling, the carrier actually retakes up, or it's called a reuptake um, transporter, that takes up the uh, transmitter to um, uh, limit the signal. And so amphetamines actually enter the cell through the transporter, and they affect all kinds of signaling pathways within the cell. Those pathways can change the properties of the cell and do many different things. And we're really trying to understand those signaling mechanisms and and also to potentially um, allow us to identify new targets which might be more selective or safer or whatever to to really um, think about what other ways we can treat ADHD. Well, interesting. Now, I understand you were the first to clone the human dopamine transporter. Um, yeah, there were several groups at the same time, but um, our, our lab was the first to clone a, a norepinephrine transporter, actually. But um, yeah, we were um, quite a number of years back, and we were interested in what these molecules looked like and and how they worked and understanding how they worked when they work well and how their functions might um, not work in under certain conditions. So, um, and we've studied that for many years since. How did you get involved in medications for ADHD? Um, because um, the, the targets that we work on, these reuptake sites, are the targets for antidepressant medications, which include the SSRIs, which target the serotonin transporter, and, um, and they also um, uh, are the targets for drugs of abuse, such as cocaine and amphetamines. So cocaine targets um, several of the transporters, and amphetamines um, tend to work selectively on the dopamine transporter more selectively. And so, um, so we've worked on how these molecules operate as drug targets and what they really do. Some drugs simply bind to the um, the, mo- the transporters and block reuptake, and that has been very useful for treating depression because it elevates neurotransmitter levels and leads to 
adaptive changes in 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 the set point for how um, neurotransmission occurs, and um, and it leads to improvement of symptoms of depression. And so we were interested in that. But I became more interested um, when we realized that in terms of amphetamine action and ADHD, was that amphetamines, although they were thought to act in a similar way to inhibit reuptake, they seem to do other things within the cell. So they also provoke the release of neurotransmitter, and um, and they actually activate signaling pathways and change um, the properties of the neuron that they act on in ways that some of the other molecules don't. And so we've explored that. Um, so most of the things we work on are really targets for drugs, either drugs of abuse, um, therapeutic antidepressants, or um, ADHD medications. And it sounds like there's things you can learn from each of those and there's some yeah. overlaps with yeah, that. and and other groups certainly you know the one th- wonderful thing about science is that um, it it's a community and so there are many other groups and together all the different groups contribute to understanding various aspects of how the drugs work. This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Amara. She's the scientific director of the Intramural Research Program at the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, what are your thoughts on the use of antidepressants and whether they're effective in treating depression? So um, uh, I think that um, antidepressants in general and and for many people um, really have a, a huge impact on um, their condition and the, and, and the disorders. So I think they're important drugs. I also think that there's potential for really understanding better mechanisms of depression to be able to better link a particular drug with a particular um, feature of the disease. And so what what I, I would say is that we don't understand the underlying mechanisms of depression, although we do know that there are many things that contribute to it. It's pretty clear that it's not just one disease. It's it can be triggered by many things, and it can be linked to genetics. It can be linked to many aspects um, of you know what what triggers the the events that produce it. And so, in that sense, I think um, there's there is potential for developing new treatments, and not simply pharmacological ones. There also the potential for developing devices and to um, for neuromodulation and and stimulation that um, of, of particular circuits in the brain involved in depression. And so, I think in some ways um, we need to to much better probe and understand the different mechanisms that operate. And and I think part of that is if we're going to prescribe medications, we want to prescribe the right ones. Many of the the antidepressants that target the, in fact most, that target the molecules I study um, are ones that um, take two weeks to actually produce an amelioration of depression. But now there are a number of new potential drugs that are um, just coming online, actually. In fact, one was approved a couple of weeks ago um, for getting fast-acting improvement of depression. Interesting. And and so it may be possible to combine those drugs with these drugs, which have a much longer, um, they they take longer to to turn on um, the systems that would improve depression. Um, The combination of those may be a way of, of, of really getting a person very rapidly improved by mechanisms. And so, you know, again, all of these things really make it important to understand what are the specific underlying mechanisms for the different forms of depression that, that have been noted? Can you tell me about work you did as a PhD student at UC San Diego? I, I read about a new um, targeted treatment for migraines that works on a molecule that was discovered by chance by researchers studying oh, thyroid tumors. That was that a was long you, right? time ago, but I'm really excited about the outcome because um, during my PhD, I worked on a gene 
um, and uh, that that encoded the hormone calcitonin. Okay, but in the in the course in the course of those studies, we discovered that the same gene could essentially be pieced together in a different way to produce another what looked to be a hormone as well. It turned out to be a neuropeptide in the brain. And that neuropeptide is um, important for vascular regulation. And, and we called it calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP. And after about 35 years of really incredible work by drug companies and investigators who saw the, the importance of this um, particular compound in vascular regulation, um, it ended up that several companies have now successfully brought forth um, antibody um, antibodies against either the peptide or the receptor that can be administered in humans and reduce the frequency of migraine attacks. And so um, they're now um, clinically available, and, and, and it's just been great to see. I, I don't work in that field anymore, but it's an example of how an unexpected discovery in one field can lead to a, a, a new drug or a new treatment for something in a completely different field than I had originally thought we were working in. So I think it's 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 a nice example, and um, and I, I I've really enjoyed watching it develop over a, like a, a long period of time. Did you always want to be a scientist? I always did. You yeah. knew from day one. Well. So. You know, I, I think I went through the fire. Of the, I wanted to be a cowgirl for a while, but I, I think I, I, if that didn't work out, you if that didn't work out, I was going to do this. But um, it, it it's it's been an incredibly rewarding career, and I tell the students that all the time. I'm here to I'm here actually to talk to the students, and um, it it um, if you love it, it's something that um, you can't think of a better a better career to really you know be able to ex- do experiments and and find out kind of fundamental mechanisms about how things work and then think about how to target those mechanisms for drug discovery or or yeah developing new medications and treatments what advice would you give to young scientists who are just getting started in their careers at a time when research funding is not plentiful yeah, it you know it. A lot of it is, um, I think, I, I think it does take a lot of resilience to to stay in science. But in fact, science, the process of science itself, has you know it has many failures. Um, there are many times when th- experiments don't work, and so you, I I always encourage them to be resilient and realize that failure is an, an important part of of what um, what happens during science. Um, and, and but most of all, you know, if it's something you really enjoy and you're really fascinated by, um, I, I really encourage students to stick with it. And there, there's another feature to it is that your path can actually doesn't necessarily mean you have to get grant funding to support your research program, your own research program. But there are many other ways that you can contribute, and so. There are people who are involved, who are scientists, who are involved in policy, in communication, in a lot of other aspects of science that still um, mean that they're doing it, they're contributing, and they're really playing an important role. So I, I tell students to think broadly about what they might do. There are opportunities in industry. I have a sister. She has the same background. She went into biotech and industry and had a, a rich and interesting career that way. And so I really do think there there's a breadth of opportunities for people who love what they're doing and are engaged in the ideas and and the you know the the approaches that um, I stick with it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. My guest has been Dr. Susan Amara. She's from the National Institute of Mental Health. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show. HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon.
editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Matthew James Babcock is a poet and fiction writer from Idaho. He teaches at BYU-Idaho and is the author of a poetry collection, Strange Terrain. He sent us a whirlwind of images into his beautiful meditation, The Last Time. The last time I drove to Utah, tributaries of tar-softened seams in parking lots like erratic maps of every broken thing. People dozed behind closed payday loan and soup and sandwich places, the slow explosions of their bodies muffled in the stalled green and dazed blue of wounded cars. Traffic raced like blood cells in a fever. Spring snow crowned the astounding mountains. A computer thanked me and coughed out six cents change at the store where I bought paper to write this. The world warmed when I went walking with the golden slaughter of dandelions on the grassy verge of the parkway. Pansies brandished the purple of gladiators, opening plum blossoms through body blows at ozone. People shot me strange looks because I wore sandals in April, a choice to please my subconscious voice, which for me is the cheerful woman with curly silver hair and cherry cardigan who sits in her son's auto dealership and calls names all day into a scratchy intercom so she has something to keep her busy, startling me from the used magazines of my dreams, asking, when was the last time your feet came close to touching the earth? This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we learn how to make sense of a pathology report. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.